0: You're listening to the Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. So in yeah, yeah. Here's
1: what God says about a person who says there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That doesn't mean when you meet an atheist, you immediately call him a fool. God said it twice. Again, Psalm 53 verse one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Smart people are not always wise people, but I'll tell you what else from the text. People are not saved by smarter intellectual messages.
0: There are many men and women who have devoted their lives to learning apologetics and devising ways to convince others of the truth of God. It's a fascinating study and it can be a wonderful pursuit, but it's not the key to reaching the world for Jesus. It's far too easy to rely on our own wisdom and the power of persuasion, but faith requires something deeper. It's a connection to God on the heart level, In today's message, Pastor Danny will remind us that faith asks us to believe in something that we can't see or even explain. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Acts chapter 17 with today's edition of The Living Word.
1: Acts chapter 17 is where we are. Verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, that's key, from the scriptures, explaining and proving from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So I would call this good fruit in Thessalonica. You know what happens when there's good fruit? Verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, then they made Jason and the others post bond and they let them go. Good fruit, expected opposition. Verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. That was their custom. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and Examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they'd hear a message from Paul and they'd go and they'd look in the scriptures and they'd find out if what he said was accurate. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Good fruit, Thessalonica, even better in Berea. And what comes next? Verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. There will always be opposition. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols A guy named Pausanias, an ancient Greek geographer, visited Athens 50 years after Paul did, and he writes that it was easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a human being. There were some 30,000 statues of various gods throughout the city. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him. They brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, what is that? That's where all the smartest people hung out. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. You don't want to miss verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world, everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It means to turn. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. But in reading that, you have to know that the fruit in Thessalonica and Berea was much greater than the fruit in Athens. And I believe portions of our text tell us why. Let me read once more the first part of verse 18 a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And verse 21, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher. He believed in attaining a happy, tranquil life characterized by what he called aponia, the absence of pain and fear. He taught that pleasure and pain are the measures of what is good and bad. Pleasure is good, pain is bad. That death is the end of the body, that you don't have to worry about anything called the soul. That the gods do not reward or punish humans. That the universe is infinite and eternal. And that events in the world are ultimately based on the motions and interactions of atoms moving in empty space. Epicureans believed in the gods, but that these gods had nothing to do with the world. They were basically practical agnostics who believed pleasure is the chief end of man and that a simple lifestyle is the most pleasurable, avoiding extremes on either side. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed everything is God. They taught that virtue is sufficient for happiness, that self-control and fortitude were the means of overcoming destructive emotions. A primary aspect of Stoicism involved improving an individual's moral and ethical well-being. Let me quote one statement that they taught. Virtue consists in a will that is in agreement with nature. Stoicism became the foremost popular philosophy among the educated elite in the ancient Greek and Roman Empire. When we think of ancient Athens, we think of very educated people, very intellectual people. We think of names like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. Athens attracted intellectuals from around the globe. Aristotle was also a Greek philosopher, a student of Plato, and a teacher of Alexander the Great. He wrote on many subjects. Listen to the list. I mean, my goodness. Talk about a smart guy. Physics, metaphysics, poetry, theater, music, logic, rhetoric, politics, government, ethics, biology, and zoology. Together with Plato and Socrates, Aristotle is one of the most important figures in f- founding what we know as Western philosophy. He was the first to create a comprehensive system of Western philosophy, encompassing morality, aesthetics, logic, science, politics, and metaphysics. Socrates, a very interesting character. Socrates was also a Greek philosopher. He's credited as also one of the founders of Western philosophy. He became renowned for his contribution to the field of ethics. Let me give you some of his ethical statements There's only one good, knowledge, and one evil, ignorance. Socrates said, to find yourself is to think for yourself. Let me give you this one. Didn't put it on PowerPoint, but you'll enjoy it. By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) Socrates said, we cannot live better than in seeking to become better. He also along with Aristotle, Plato, helped to lay the foundations of Western philosophy. There is a verse in the Bible that describes the general character of the people of ancient Athens. Here it is. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do not deceive yourselves, if any of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. Stop there for just a minute. He's talking about the way they're going to look at you. They're going to look at you as a fool. You're foolish for believing what you believe. You should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Romans 1, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. And here's the first lesson from the text. Smart people are not always wise people. And if you look at some scripture, you could actually say correctly, smart people are not usually wise people. And it's not God's fault, it's their fault. Here's what God says about a person who says there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That doesn't mean when you meet an atheist, you immediately call him a fool. God said it twice. Again, Psalm 53, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Smart people are not always wise people, but I'll tell you what else from the text. People are not saved by smarter intellectual messages. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The Bible defines the gospel this way. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came, he died on a cross, he shed his blood to pay for the sin of the world. He was buried so that if you repent, it means to turn, become a follower of Jesus Christ, receive him as your Lord and Savior, your sin can be buried he rose again so that if you trust him as savior you can have new life, eternal life and everlasting life and an endless glorious inheritance. That's the gospel and a child can understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the gospel, to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse three is fascinating to me. I came to you, Corinth, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. That's fascinating to me. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Why did Paul come to Corinth in weakness, with great fear, and trembling? All you got to do is go back to our text in Acts 17, and let the opening verse, look at the opening verse in Acts chapter 18. Here's what it says. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, I think Paul's one of the bravest followers of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. He got beat up most places he went. He got beat up in Athens, but not physically. It is not true what we were taught when we were young boys and girls. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is not what the Bible says. The power of life and death is in the tongue. And Paul the Apostle, though one of the greatest and bravest followers of Jesus Christ I know of, he was still human. And he got verbally beat up in Athens. And when he got to Corinth, he came in weakness, fear, and much trembling. But a point was driven home to him that he already knew. But boy, he would never forget it. And it was so freshly powerful. What was that point? Don't just try to meet them on their level. Don't just quote their poets. Now, some people say Paul was wrong in quoting their poets and trying to meet them on their level. I don't know. All I know is he got beat up verbally in Athens, and it affected him so much, and he went away realizing it is just simply the message of the gospel, and I better not mix my intellect with it in terms of trying to make it more attractive. Now, don't lose that point, because we're going to come back to it before we're done. Never mix worldly wisdom with the gospel. Senior year in high school, my oldest son, Tanner, had to write an essay for a college scholarship application. I want to read you a portion of it. For the past few years, there's been something inside of me that has just wanted to debate the facts, and not even the facts, but merely intellectual ideas. Some egomaniacal part of me has fought for dominance over intangible thoughts and theories, while all along my soul has shied away from the truth of the matter. My son's very smart. He's his mother's side of the family. It's as though I were in a garden, hacking away at the leaves of a monstrous weed and taking exceedingly great care not to attack its root. Tonight, I realized a profound truth. And within the past hour, it's made an equally profound impact upon my outlook on life. The truth of Jesus Christ outweighs any issues. Having grown up in a Christian home where I was fed the word of God as daily bread, I knew the truth of Jesus Christ. Having accepted him as my Lord and Savior at a young age, I desired to offer something in return for the gift he bestowed upon me. But somewhere over the course of time, I began to worry more about the issues of life than his truth. I became ignorant to the fact that there is absolutely nothing I can do to return the favor, as it were. My earnest to please God morphed into a vulgar quest to point out the faults of everyone else rather than speak the truth of my Lord. Saddens me to think it hasn't been until my senior year of high school that I've realized my utter failure in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The first three years I spent arguing the reality of a supreme being rather than shining a light upon that being. I've been hacking away at the leaves of a weed when I should have been attacking the root. I sought to strain out a gnat but swallowed a camel. This is the great challenge of my life, to know Christ and preach him uncompromisingly to those around me. All I need do is present the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead for the sake of the world. Upon that truth, God will work what he may in the lives of those I encounter in my lifetime. And I just like to say, that's my boy. (laughs) And the last point, you don't want to miss it. The simplicity of the gospel does not discount the evidence for or the intelligence of truth. For example, there are very intellectual critics of the Bible. And they claim that because the Bible in the original manuscript has been copied and recopied and recopied and recopied over hundreds of years, that the present Bible we have contains massive error. But there was a discovery made in 1947 that gives these critics a little bit of a problem. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain every book of the Hebrew canon, the original Hebrew canon, except the book of Esther. Massive discovery. Prior to their discovery, the earliest Old Testament texts were called the Masoretic Text, and they are dated from about AD 90. One of the most preserved manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls is the Scroll of Isaiah, it's on display in Israel. It's fascinating. The original copy of Isaiah was made about 1,700 years before the Masoretic text. So critics assume that centuries of copying, recopying, must have introduced scribal errors. But the Dead Sea Scrolls prove otherwise. When they, for example, match up the Masoretic text from hundreds of years before with the scroll of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, They are virtually exactly the same. God knows how to preserve his word. The only variations were minor slips of the pen and spelling alterations. But the message behind the text was exactly the same. And we're not going to get into them this morning, but the fulfilled Bible prophecies. You can't find a book. There never has been one. There never will be one like this book. You can't find a religion and a book of religion in our world that has the prophecies already fulfilled that our Bible has. If you just take the prophecies of Jesus Christ alone and his first coming, not including the prophecies about his second coming, if you just take those prophecies alone and you're an open-minded, honest person, you have to at least acknowledge, yes, he is the Messiah. And last but not least, there are discoveries and inventions, and I'm only giving you one invention. There's more. Modern military, that's one invention that proves the Bible. Discoveries, and I'll give you one invention that confirm the Bible. Most scholars believe Job, the book of Job in the Old Testament, is the first book ever written in the Bible. It was written over 3,000 years ago. Listen to what I said. Over 3,000 years ago, the book of Job was written. Job chapter 26, first part of verse 7 says, He, God, spreads out the northern skies over empty space. Just a few years ago, astronomers discovered in the northern universe a black hole. And the materials there are, there's nothing of materials in the rest of the universe like here. It's basically a black hole. Catch this. It's nearly a billion light years a cross. And it's in the northern universe. But we just discovered it a few years ago. All you had to do is pick up the book of Job and you go, well, you know, I can't see it. I don't know where it is. I don't know what. But there's, you know what? He spreads out in the northern skies over empty space, a big black hole. Last part of the verse is also fascinating. He suspends the earth over nothing, just hanging there. You know how many years ago it was that we discovered that the earth is held in place by gravitational forces? just under 400 years ago, we discovered that the earth is held in place by gravitational forces. But God told us over 3000 years ago.
0: We're so thankful to be able to share this time with you today on The Living Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Petersburg, Florida. We've been learning some historical things from the Book of Acts, a New Testament book that records the early church and how the disciples spread the gospel of Jesus to the world. What an incredible move of the Holy Spirit that we get to not only read about, but experience today. If you'd like to hear today's message again or other messages like it from Pastor Danny, visit our website at ccfstpete.church. Look under the Media tab and click on Sermons. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment and ask you to partner with us in prayer here at The Living Word. Prayer is an incredibly powerful tool that you can use against the enemy who doesn't play fair Being in conversation with the Lord is an exercise that's extremely rewarding as you find yourself more and more in a relationship with God. As far as a specific prayer request, please pray that we'd always have it on the forefront of our minds to be teaching the Word and reaching the world. As you pray about this, we pray too that your heart is encouraged and growing in the Word through these teachings. Thanks for praying, and thanks for being a part of this ministry. Join us again next time to dive deeper into the book of Acts right here on The Living Word.